Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 103. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, my special guest is juggler Dick Franco. Before we get to Dick Franco and all the wonderful stories about his great career, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. To thank me, go to Amazon.com and buy one of my books, especially my new book, Budsuckers, The Stories of Vampires, and a lot more. All right, enough brouhaha. Drop everything and get ready for Dick Franco. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 103, my very special guest from America, Dick Franco. Hi, Dick. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good. You know, I had to introduce you that way because of uh, that's how I first experienced you was on VHS tape in the Circus World Championship. And I must have watched that introduction hundreds of times. So I hope you don't mind that I say, from America, Dick Franco. Well, I think that's what they said. That was in uh, 79. Yeah, not, yeah, I think you did it twice. In my notes, it was 79 and 86. Yeah. Well, actually, what you saw here was uh, that was an HBO special, probably. But they they overdubbed a lot of that because the the British version was on Boxing Day right after we taped that show, and so um, they had a different voiceover. And, and when HBO bought it, they did their own thing. In fact, it's a little bit out of sync because they edited the video a little bit, and they're they're making a comment about this and that that doesn't match exactly what I'm doing. But only I know that. So. Well, but in the era before YouTube, uh, we had one friend, John Luker who had the VHS tapes, you know, he had the eight millimeter film, mm-hmm. uh, I think even before VHS tapes. And it was you and, of course, Chris Cremo. And uh, I think Rudy Schweitzer was the other competitor. Yeah, Rudy was there. Uh-huh. Like I say, before I started juggling in my early incarnation as a juggler, you were very, very influential. And so I want to give you some props first before we get started on your history of the important part you played in. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we crossed paths pretty early. Yeah. You were at one of our first professional gigs. But before we get to that, let's go back to that. One of the things people knew about you was that you started juggling pretty late in life. And I heard as late as like 29 or even early 30s. What were you like as a kid? And when did you first experience juggling and learn to juggle? Well, putting it all together now, it's a little bit different. But when I was a kid, you know, I used to lay on the floor in the living room and I watched the Ed Sullivan show. And it would only... TV was black and white, and I, I like to watch the Ed Sullivan show. Everybody watched the Ed Sullivan show in those days. I'd watch the Ed Sullivan show, and I'd see a juggler on there every once in a while. I had a tennis ball. I would lay there waiting for the show to come on, and I had a tennis ball, and I would throw. There was like a little cornish, uh, cornish uh, up on top of the uh, of the door jam, you know, where I was there. And so I would, for lack of anything else to do, I would toss that stupid tennis ball up there and try to get it just to land and stay up there. You have to, if you throw it too high, it bounces. If you throw it too low, it doesn't make it. You got to spin it a little bit so it stays up there and then stops. I got that, you know, I'm watching the jugglers on TV on the Ed Sullivan show. And so then I start playing around with that and, and I could do that reliably. Um, and I remember, I remember seeing the Hawks on there and I remember seeing somebody doing some uh, kickups. And I don't, I don't know who that would have been, but it was probably Ugo Garrido. Mm-hmm. 
That's who I he think. was on the show a lot. Was he wearing like the Matador outfit, that type of? Uh... <laughs> I don't remember. Just I wasn't tuned into juggling or anything there, but it did attract my attention. And the Hawks were were club passers. The Hawks were club passers, I think. Yeah, Walter Hawk, his wife Ingrid, and his daughter. There were three three people. And I remember that distinctly, and I, I did meet him later on. I mean, when you saw the jugglers, did you feel something about them, especially on the show? Uh, does that inspire you with your ball trick? And Yeah, I was interested. I wasn't too into juggling. I wasn't like watching the show saying, oh, I want to see a juggler. I didn't know even jugglers existed. And then I saw that, and I said, wow, that's really cool. I thought that was really cool. But I, I didn't think like, oh, I want to learn that myself or anything. But I did have that tennis ball and I could throw that tennis ball up there on top of the, the woodwork above the door and, and get it to stay there. Yeah. I know I got that from watching the jugglers. So I, I didn't have props or clubs or anything like that, but I did have a tennis ball and I thought I could throw, well, let's see if I could throw that up there and make it stick, you know, and, and I could, it took a while, but I, I could do it. Well, humble beginnings, very humble. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a, fascination with juggling or I want to learn to juggle or anything like that. It was just that one thing. It kind of inspired me for, for lack of anything else, I guess. I don't know. So when did you officially try to juggle then? At what age? So this is like when you're like maybe a young boy of nine or 10 or, or teenager. Yeah, I was maybe 10 or yeah. 11, 12, something like that. It was the Ed Sullivan days. It was black and white. At least we, we, I knew it. <laughs> we didn't have a color television set. So we didn't know if it was black or white or not. Right, right. Yeah, I was I was pretty young then, and it didn't really go anywhere. I didn't do anything from that. And what was your family business? Were they in show business at all, or I think they were trucking, right, or truckers, or? No, my my father worked for the railroad. Hmm, okay, he's really the only person I know that ever had this. He had one job his whole life. He started with the railroad, and he stayed with the same company until he retired. Pretty pretty unusual, yeah, but uh, he was sure. he was a freight sales manager. He would. He would sell the space on a box car or, a, you know, some whatever car they were using, you know, the, the, the square footage of that space. His job was to fill that with some kind of a product. And then they would haul that across country. Right. So no show business background, nothing to do with show business. No, absolutely nothing. No, my, my mother was, she was a show business person. She would have been, but her, her parents wouldn't, wouldn't allow her. She was pretty young. And she was, uh, she lived right near the KDKA radio, which was the first national radio station that broadcasted cross country. And uh, she lived very near the tower, right near the studios of that in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. And she could sing and she was a dancer too. She was a ballroom dancer, as was my father. My, My father was a ballroom dancer and that's how they met. She was a dancer and she got together with a couple other girls and they had a trio and they would sing those uh, the little songs, the little ditties and things between segments on KDKA radio. You oh, know? Okay, yeah. And they always wanted to go on the road and tour, those girls. Right. And my mother was pretty young, and she asked her parents, she says, well, I want to go on tour with the girls. And they said, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. So all of her life, she was a frustrated performer because my mother could play the piano, she could sing, she could dance, she could do everything. When I got into show business, she was my biggest supporter. Mm. You know, my my father said, well, what are you, nuts? (laughs) And my mother said, go for it, man. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. So she was she was a talented person and she was an artist and she could do anything that she wanted to do artistically. And um, she made jewelry and her whole life was like that. She was a writer and a 
And she wrote a juggling book, too. When I got into juggling, my mother got into juggling as well. She was in a retirement community. She learned how to juggle, and she started doing classes in her communities oh. you know, to teach people. And she wrote a book called uh, Juggling for the Bifocal Bunch. That, I never knew that. That's a very interesting uh, little bit of tidbit there. Yeah. Yeah, it was geared for retirees. Yeah. And um, I have a copy of it. In fact, I, I published it and distributed it um, down in Southwest Florida. You know, to all the libraries. I took a yeah. copy and gave it to each library so, so it would be there. And I'm, I'm sure I have a copy of it here somewhere. It was one of those one of those things. You know, she, she wrote the book, and she was a really good writer. She wrote for, for right, right, magazines right. in Southwest Florida, and she was a pilot, and uh, she had her own airplane. She had her own flight school. She, had wow. she was a mechanic. She could do anything. You know, anything she wanted to do, she could do that. But she was fully supportive. Well, it's pretty cool that she took up juggling, too. That's That's pretty cool. Yeah, she she would buy. I started playing guitar. She started playing guitar. <laughs> it was just like that, you know. They, so, what was the actual age you you learned to juggle? So, how old were you actually? I was in high school, and I I think I was a senior in high school. So, what would that be like? 17, 17 or 18, 18 yeah, something like, like that. that. Seventeen, eighteen. I was a lifeguard at the local swimming pool, and it was a round swimming pool, and it had a big island in the middle of it with diving boards and a deep end. And then there was a fence that went around that separated the shallower water from the deeper water. And on around that fence, they had entryways where the people could swim through. They'd have a lifeguard's chair there, and that's where the lifeguards were stationed. So I was one of those lifeguards. And my friend, uh, I knew who he was. He lived in a neighbor in the next neighborhood over, and he went to the Catholic schools, Joe Sullivan. Yeah. He was the nephew of Joe Flynn, who was Captain Binghamton on the, on the TV series McHale's Navy with Ernest Borgnine and Tim Conway. And that was, that was a big show right. on, on television. And Joe Flynn was also, at that time, he was a, a Disney actor. He was in all the big Disney movies. He was a, a very famous guy. And he was a local uh, a guy in Youngstown, Ohio, that you know everybody knew about. And Joe was his nephew. So the one summer, um, I'd see Joe every once in a while walking to school or in the park or something like that. But we weren't, we weren't good friends or anything. But I knew who he was. He knew who I was. And one summer, I got the job as a lifeguard, and I was walking up to the pool, which was about a three-mile walk to get to the swimming pool. And on the way there, I bumped into him, and he had a towel with his bathing suit and stuff wrapped around. And I said, "What are you?" I said, "He says I'm a lifeguard. I'm going to be a lifeguard." I said, "Well, me too. Yeah. We'll be at the North Side Pool." So we we'd always walk together, and we became friends. Just before that summer, Joe Flynn called Joe, and he said, "Hey, listen, I have a, I have the inside tip." The Ringling Brothers, Bartim and Bailey, is going to do a, a clown college. They're going to create a clown college, and I can get you in on the first one. And you'll learn a lot of stuff. You don't have to work on the show. You know, you, you yeah. just go down there and you learn a lot of stuff. And then I'll bring you out here to Hollywood, and you can use all of those talents that you learned down there for auditions, and I can get you into the into show business out here, you know, movies and TV. Mm-hmm. So Joe said, that, well, that's a good idea. And Nate, Joe went to the first clown college down in Venice, Florida. Then Joe became, Joe Sullivan became well-known in our town because he was one of these guys that was the nephew of Joe Flynn, and he was in this clown college. So I knew about this from reading it in the papers. And then when I saw him on the way to the pool, I says, hey, you were down in Florida. You were in the <laughs> clown college. He goes, yeah, I learned all kind of stuff. I could ride a unicycle and and we learned how to do slapstick comedy, and I learned juggling too. Anyways, we got to the swimming pool. We we're working in the swimming pool, and uh, as, li- as lifeguards, and um, of course, we're up, 
you know, we're out not up there as lifeguards. We're, we're up there to pick up chicks. <laughs> well, you were 18, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we got a suntan, I got our <laughs> hair blonde, everything. Everybody's sure. looking good. You just you put your sunglasses on, you're up there doing the Tom Cruise thing looking for girls. And at this point, you're Dick Francis, right? You're not Dick Franco yet, you're Dick Francis. Yeah, Yeah. right, right. No, no, Dick Franco doesn't exist. <laughs> okay, right. But anyways, um, there was a, one Italian girl that, that I liked, and she never paid attention to me or anything like that. But I was thinking, like, how are we going to do this? And what would happen was we'd do the pool check, and Joe Sullivan would jump up on the fence and he'd walk around like it's a tight walk, like he's tight rope walking. Yeah. And then he would get some balls or something and he would juggle eyes up there and the whole place would go crazy because you got the <laughs> swimming pool. It's right, a captive right. audience. Yeah. Everybody go crazy. And then after that, all the girls are hanging all over him. So I said, Hey, can you teach me that? And Joe said, Sure, I can teach you. So he started teaching me to juggle three balls and it was painful. I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And then he had to really break it down and I'd try it with one and, and try it with two. And it was, failure after failure after failure and, and well, after a few days finally one time i got it and i could do it but i didn't know what i was doing what were you using like like baseball what, what kind of balls did they have back then they didn't have silicon balls or or lacrosse balls right or no i i don't i don't know <laughs> just some junky rubber balls three rocks or something <laughs> like that was just yeah it was just like a rubber ball or a tennis ball yeah back in the primitive days yeah something like that i don't remember but he never went out to hollywood then he never went out to hollywood and became famous joe uh well, he did go out in the wintertime, and he was the script boy for, for Joe Flynn. Hmm. And he was hanging around getting to know everybody in, in Hollywood. But um, Joe, was, uh, Joe Sullivan, was a, well, he was a homebody. He liked his home. He liked Youngstown, and he wasn't a traveling guy. And later on, we, we, we ended up doing a double act together. And the first thing I wanted to do was get on the road and go work some places, even on the street. And Joe came with me in the beginning, but he was always like, oh, gee, I'm tired. I want to go home. You know, I want to go home. <laughs> yeah. So um, he was a homebody and he went back to Youngstown and was doing all of the little shows we were doing for the library and for the, the coach, for the country club and for the school and for the church and the museum and all that the stuff around town. But I, I wanted to be out of there. Yeah. And he's still doing that same stuff now, now 40 years later. Yeah, I met him years ago. I probably met him 20 years ago or so. And yeah, uh -huh. he's still there out in, uh, what, Pennsylvania or Ohio, where we still live in? Uh... Yeah, still in Ohio. And yeah. um, he's still doing the library shows, the same ones that we were doing when we started for $10. But you did have a very famous uh, early mentor, uh, a very famous juggler who was retired, lived nearby. Who was this famous mentor who uh, everyone knows, who was... Uh, very important to you. Oh, that was Bobby Bobby May. Yeah, how, how'd you find out about him and, and, and come about becoming his student? Well, Joe and I, we were devouring juggling at that time. And that was, that was difficult to do because we didn't know where shows were. We didn't have internet or anything like that. And we had one book in the library. It was uh, Rudolf Dietrich's. Uh, so I, I want to be a juggler, mm -hmm. that, yeah, yeah. that book. And we, we went through that book upside down and backwards and forwards and and we would watch the newspapers, and I remember we saw a thing in the newspaper about a show that was going to be at the Masonic Temple. So we went down there to see that, and there happened to be a juggler there. It was Johnny Luxem, Johnny Lux hmm. from Cleveland, Johnny yeah. Lux. And uh, so we saw him work on stage, but we didn't talk to him. And then we kept looking around and looking around, and then we saw that a shopping mall was having like a circus promotion. And it was in a neighboring town, uh, Warren, Ohio. So we went over there, we saw the show, and that was where the Hawks were. Walter Hawk was there, and we didn't know how to juggle five balls. We couldn't figure it out. 
So we asked Walter, he says, could, could we talk to you after the show? And he said, sure, no problem. So we went out to his trailer after, and we said, well, we were wondering, how do you juggle five balls? And he grabbed five balls and he juggled them. We were blown away. We couldn't believe <laughs> right, right. it. Yeah. Walter, he was real nice. We went back and watched his show a lot of times. And it was the first time I ever held a juggling club, a real juggling club. And he gave me the name of um, Homer Stack, name, right. uh, phone number. He says, if, if you need information, call this guy. He can, he can help you. Hmm. We were just amateurs then. We weren't, right. we could pass some clubs and do a little demonstration, but it was nothing really. But sometimes people would pay us to do that. Sure. So, so I met Walter and um, later on, much, much later on, um, Walter came out of, I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He came out of the audience. He came over and says, you remember me? <laughs> right. And um, I said, yeah, I remember you. He says, I remember you came to my trailer. You asked me how to juggle five balls. And and I was a pro then. I was doing good shows. I was working center ring on a three ring circus in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with a huge crowd. But Walter came over and he says, oh, you're doing great. You're doing great. He was very encouraging. Much later on, when he was over 100 years old, I bumped huh. into him again down in Florida by really by accident. So Walter was a, like a thread that was all through my life. And I ended up doing an interview of him, which is posted on the internet. I did photographs and everything. Oh yeah, I think I saw that when, when he turned 100. I think I remember seeing that. Yeah, right, right. It's on the, uh, what is it, Circus? It's that Circus site, the Circopedia, Circopedia. Mm -hmm. okay. But I spent a lot of time with Walter. I was working in Sarasota and I would go to his house every day. He was blind, he was, well, well over 100 years old at that time. But anyways, I went through his whole career with him and wrote everything down and copied all of his uh, memorabilia that he had. And we put that article together and I, I sent it to Dominique Jandot, who does the Circopedia, and he published it. So it's, a, it's online somewhere there. But Walter was a, just a you know, wonderful, delightful guy. But from the beginning, he's the guy that was there in the very, very beginning and at the very, very end for me. And it was just, uh, I saw him at a restaurant and he looked familiar, you know, and I was thinking, is that Walter Hauck? But then I did the math and I figured, well, he's got to be well over a hundred now, which right. he was, Right. but he was fine, but he was good. He was very sharp and still very good. So that's cool. Walter's like wound all the way through there. And were they usually what, like Harry Lynn clubs? What kind of clubs did the Hawks use? Harry yeah, Lynn? Harry Lynn, that's just standard Harry Lynn club. Yeah. Heavy monsters. But to me, they were like a feather like the first time. I never saw, I, never, I thought they were bowling pins. I didn't know the difference. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> he, was he friends with Bobby May too? Or how how's that work back towards Bobby May? Well, he knew Bobby. Um, see, Walter was in Europe. And in Europe, there were thousands and thousands of acts. So his juggling, his family juggling act was in Europe. And he did a lot of other things too, besides juggling. But then he was seen and he, was, he came to uh, Hollywood Somebody saw him and brought him to Hollywood, and he ended up being like an opening act for big stars. So he, he moved up in stature, and he ended up working with Danny Thomas and Bob Hope. And he got out of the ranks of the variety bills and became an opening act. And, and that's pretty much what he did most of his career, like Ed Sullivan. That's why he saw him in Ed Sullivan. It wasn't to make the money. It was to get the notoriety for, you know, to get more of that, mm -hmm. you know, standard yeah, value. of value. Yeah. Of work exactly. Walter was—he wasn't a big influence, but he was a—you uh, know—he was a supporter. And you know, he always told me, he says, "Oh, you have the real good skills." And he didn't say, "Oh, you should quit and do something else or anything like that." He was very encouraging. <laughs> well, at that time, were you just a lifeguard? Did you have an actual job that you were, you know, pursuing, or you were still kind of kicking it around? No, when I saw him the very first time, no, I was 
I was, uh, gee, I don't know. I, I think I was working for the trucking company at that time. So I would go out at lunchtime and do a show with Joe Sullivan. And I was interested in doing more because I could go at lunchtime. I could make more money at lunchtime than I make the whole day working, you know? So I think, was thinking there's something wrong here. <laughs> so, you know, I was leaning towards like, I wonder if I can make a living doing this, you know? I started, you know, venturing out and seeing different things and different people. And I saw Walter and he was very encouraging. And, and he's the one that told me, he says, oh, yeah, there's a lot of business out there. You can get a job and you can stay busy. And there's a lot of shows. In fact, the show I saw him on, it was called the TNT Circus. And it was a shopping mall circus where Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the shopping malls. Hmm. And uh, l- later on, I worked that show myself. And that's how I got the Globetrotter job it was from that that little shopping mall show. Joe Sullivan wants to stay home. You're kind of branching out a little bit and you're meeting other jugglers. Yeah. And so you're like in your early 20s around this time, but you're 21, 22 or so? No, I think I'm like 19 or so. 19? You know, 19, maybe 20. I was hanging around with Joe Sullivan and we were, you know, if we'd hear about a show, we would go see it. We'd jump in a car, we'd drive. We didn't care how where it was. We'd go, we'd go see it. Sometimes there'd be nothing there. Right. Sometimes there'd be a juggler, an acrobat. We were always interested to see that. And then I had heard that at Case Western Reserve uh, University in Cleveland, there was a uh, juggling and circus techniques class was being taught by Hubby Burgess. Oh, okay. So we jumped in the car. We went up there to see Hubby Burgess. And <laughs> we, we sat and watched his class and everything like that. And then after he says, oh, you two guys, you should pass clubs. We said, well, how do you do that? And he said, I'll show you. And so he taught me and Joe how to pass clubs for the first time. And he said, you know, there's an old juggler. Um, he's here in town. He's in a hospital. He had a heart attack. He said, maybe you guys should try to find him, try to locate him. His name's Bobby May. So we said, Bobby May, man. Yeah, let's see what we can do. So anyway, we get on the phone. In those days, you have to call. Yeah. Was it 411, remember? And you, yeah. Not yeah, four one one information. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have internet or anything. Yeah, you really got to dig. You really got to dig. <laughs> start calling hospitals. And he, plus, you don't know his real name, right? His real name's not Bobby May. Right, right. His name was yeah. But yeah. but he was such a character. Everybody knew him anyways. Right, right. So we we had no trouble finding him. We called around. Hmm. He's just a guy with his show business, and he was a juggler. And this is oh, we know who you're talking about. You know. Right. And then they they connected me, and uh, he's on the phone, and I mean he's in a hospital recovering from a heart attack and he's like ah oh yeah yeah you guys <laughs> come on up come on up as soon as i get out of here he's come by the house and he gave me his address and everything and right right so anyways you know he gets out of the hospital he recovers a little bit not very much because to him juggling was an important thing it was more important than his health so um anyways we me and joe we went up to his house and and that was the eye-opener. You know, he pulls out his collection of stuff and all the programs where he worked because he kept everything. And he tells yeah. us stories about <clears throat> all the jobs he had and where he worked. And, he, you know, he had emphysema, too, from the cigarette trick. And um, so he'd, he'd get all puffed. He'd run out of air. He couldn't <laughs> talk anymore. He'd say, just a minute, just a minute. He'd sit there and, he'd, <clears throat> you know, he'd catch his breath. And then he'd go back to his story. And uh, tell us all about what's going on and the places that he worked and everything. And it was very inspiring. But, but the cigarette trick by itself can't give you emphysema. I want to stop you there because you're saying the cigarette trick where he tossed the cigarette around his back and they tossed the match around his back and lit the two together. Yeah. 
But right. he also was a smoker, right? Well, of course. Well, he <laughs> said he didn't start smoking to smoke. He started because he was doing a cigarette trick. Right, 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 right. As, as long as it's lit, you might as well smoke it. And people are always asking him, do that cigarette trick. So he's always right. walking around with a cigarette in his mouth, you know? Right. In that case, in those days, that was healthy. Yeah, it helped your digestion or something like that. That's yeah, something happened. like that. Now, does he do any juggling at that point, or is he too sick to juggle, or could he still show you stuff? He, he had his props. Uh, he had a, a lounge chair, uh, like a lazy boy chair, and he had his stroke, three clubs by the base of the chair. And then he had five balls on a dish in front of the fireplace, and the fireplace had a big concrete base to it, and he would bounce five balls there. But that's all, that's all he would do. And when we were there sometime, he'd go outside. He would uh, throw some clubs in the backyard. Uh, but he couldn't do anything with his left arm. Most of the tricks he did was with his right arm because he, he was doing that headstand trick. Mm -hmm. Upside down. Where he's bouncing the balls upside down. But he was yeah. doing it with a partner. They were doing a head-to-head. -head. Oh, okay. And he slipped off and he landed on his left shoulder. And oh. ever since then, he couldn't do anything. He did everything with the right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So we we go out in the backyard and he would he could still do quite a bit. He wasn't supposed to, <laughs> right. but he'd still go out there and he'd be throwing stuff around and he had these other things that he did like uh, he had some axes that he did and some plates and he was always showing us something. Here, let me show you this. Let me show you that. Let me show you this. And it was all stuff we'd never seen before. You know, gradually, his health deteriorated. He would always get us and he'd say, "Here, put your ear on my chest here. I want you to hear." What happens? He said, don't smoke, you know, and he'd breathe and you could hear him wheezing, you know, mm. from, from the emphysema yeah, and yeah. everything. So, so he didn't advertise smoking in any way. He was, he said, don't do it. Right. Right. Well, that's good. Yeah. And his wife, Emily, Emily was always around too. And well, you know, our visits would be short in the beginning, but then we'd end up there for the whole weekend. He goes, Oh, you guys could, you could <laughs> take the, the bedroom upstairs and we'll have breakfast in the morning. And oh, that's great. We, yeah. We'd always have beans. Wieners and beans. For breakfast or for dinner? Uh, that was that was it. Uh, whatever. <laughs> right, 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 right. But it was that experience of like looking at his his stuff and seeing everywhere he worked. You thought, huh? I, I want to do this too, right? That was that was what it was. Well, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. yeah. You could see just from the material that he had that he was he was famous all over the world. And those, yeah. those are the days when a juggler could be famous. And right. you know, he's working for the Queen and. His resume was just incredible. And the money that he made was incredible, too. He had a beautiful home, wonderful life. And he always said, he always said too, he says, I've been everywhere five times. I've done everything five times. He says, if I, don't, if I die tomorrow, that's okay. I'm okay. fine. Yeah, yeah. He was happy. So he, was, Good. he was very content. Good to hear. Very Good content. Hear. And did he still have some contacts? Was he able to help you, like, professionally? Not, not really, no. But well, he, he didn't know it. He couldn't help me really, right. but when I did get to Europe the first time, I went to Paris and the, the biggest agent in Europe was Albert Tavell. Mm -hmm. I was in Paris and I said, well, maybe I'll just go bang on this door and see what happens. So I go and I knock on the door and I, the secretary's there, Monique Nakachian. She eventually took over the agent. Right, Monique, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I went in and I, Monique was there and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm Dick Farrico. I'm from America. I'm a friend of Bobby May. Yeah, and she was just in the process of telling me that I couldn't see Mr. Tavell without a an appointment, and then pretty soon he's standing in the doorway of his office, and he goes, "So, how do you know Bobby May?" Let's <laughs> so open the door. Right, right, right. And then two minutes later, I'm sitting in there with Albert Tavell. I've only been in Europe just 
for a couple of days and I'm already I already have an audience with the biggest agent in in Europe. So how how did you start your solo career before you get to Europe? How did you sort of make that jump now you sort of you're with Joe but you, you realize you're going to go off solo but how do you make uh, the jump into professional juggling from, you know, truck dispatcher or whatever you're doing at the time? You know, I don't really know. <laughs> and to this day we didn't have any internet. We didn't have any way to talk to each other or do anything. I don't know. It's just luck. Yeah, just started happening, huh? Yeah. Just dumb luck. And Bobby May used to tell me, he used to say, you, you never know what's going to happen, he said, but you got to be ready for it. Mm, so right. you, you can't wait for something to happen and then get ready. Right. You have to be ready for it. So you have to faith, you know, that. Right. That's, like you work, out, you work on your act so that when the time comes. Yeah, that something's going to happen. You don't wait, wait for the opportunity and then work on your act. Yeah. Right. And to work on your act, you just had to go by your own instinct. Because I didn't have anybody to say, do this or do that. I didn't have a director. My director right. was Joe. And how much, how much did you practice at first? Were you do a couple hours a day? What, what kind of practice regime did you have? Oh, I practiced day and night just because I, I, <laughs> right. I love doing it. Yeah. And I wanted to, to do more and more and more all the time. But I was also misguided. And I didn't get really any guidance. Yeah until a little bit later, but I could still get work. I was good enough that I could get, I could get jobs. Yeah, local stuff you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, local stuff, and then I wanted to get out, and I, there, I knew there was a show in Michigan, it was called Voorhees Circus, and I saw an advertisement, they were, I was in the trucking business, and so I saw an advertisement that said, uh, circus in Michigan, looking for truck driver. Mm. And so I could drive a truck, I had a, a city license to, to move, you know, like heavy hauler license to ferry big trailers and things around locally in the town. Now, I wasn't an over the road driver, but I could move trailers from my lot down to the, to the mill where they fill it up and then take it to a truck stop and give it to somebody else to haul cross country. So I saw that ad there. And so I called and I said, yeah, I'm a truck driver. I'm interested in the job. So they gave me the job as a truck driver. And I thought that once I got there and I was <laughs> right. on the show, yeah. that I could practice and maybe they'll put me in the show. <laughs> oh, well, good strategy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I went there and while they're setting up, I'd say, Hey, do you mind? Can I go over here in the corner and practice? You know, cause I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm an Tell amateur you. juggler. And the owner said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And he saw me because you're good. You're better than the <laughs> ones we got. We're paying. <laughs> right, right, right. And you could drive the truck. Yeah. yeah. And I could drive the truck. So they put me in the show. I did real well in the show. And I was with Alberto Zoppe. So Alberto Zoppe was a star mm -hmm. of the greatest show on earth movie with Charlton House, Charlton Heston. You know, he's featured in that show. Yeah. Zoppe Family Circus is still working today. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Anyways, I'm, I'm there and I'm doing that show and I'm getting some experience. When that tour wound up, uh, we were near Chicago. And I had met Paul Bachman at a unicycling convention. Okay. Right. And in, somewhere in Indiana. And we got along great, you know, and uh, Ken Benj was there as well. So I, Paul Bachman and Ken Benj. Yeah. And Claude Crumley was also at the convention. So I got to know those people. And they were the meat of uh, show business in Chicago. So anyways, I was close to Chicago. So I called Paul up and I said, hey, I'm uh, in Michigan. I said, maybe I'll stop by and see you. He said, sure, come on over. So anyway, I go over there, I have a trailer, and I parked it in his driveway, and we would go to the gym every day and practice, and he helped me to put together an act. I saw a couple of agents in Chicago, I got some work in uh, Indianapolis, it was around Christmas time, and Des Moines, I did a show, I actually did a, a two-ring circus in Des Moines, Iowa, and Paul Bachman and I were the juggling display. 
we were we did it together and we doing like a balls rings and clubs at this time what, what was your act uh, consisting of yeah balls rings and clubs typical stuff yeah and, and ping pong balls, too. Okay. Had you met uh, Grand Picasso by this time, or wh- where'd you learn the ping pong balls? Yeah, I met I met Picasso in 74. Oh, okay. See, that's another Bobby May thing. Yeah. Joe Sullivan and I went to see the Ringling Show in Akron, Ohio, and Picasso was there on the show. Yeah, El Grand Picasso, yeah. El Grand Picasso, right. And I remember seeing him on uh, Johnny Carson in New York. Mm. He did the ping pong balls on, on that show, and I, I remember clearly seeing that. Yeah. So then I see him in the show, so we snuck in. Uh, we saw him backstage. Went over, and talked to him. And Picasso was great. What a what a friendly guy. You know, he <laughs> took us under his wing, and he yeah, yeah. he'd hide us from the security guys and everything. You know, oh, funny. And yeah. we'd we'd do some juggling. He goes, yeah, that's good, that's good. And Picasso would started showing me. He says, oh, don't do it like you're just standing there. You got to move a little bit. Yeah. In in the end, they were there like two weeks. And while we were there, I, I asked him. I said, well, how did you get? How did you get started? And he said that he was working on an orange farm, picking oranges, and he was a trumpet player in high school. And sometimes he would get a job at the circus, playing trumpet in the circus. So he he was watching TV one day, and there was a juggler on there, and it was Bobby May. Hmm. And he said, wow, that's pretty cool. He says, I can do that, because Picasso used to pop grapes out of his mouth and catch them. Oh, okay. You know, he said, maybe I could do something like with the ping pong balls, and he developed that. So he was on his way trying to get into show business as a juggler because the juggler he played for in the circus told him how much money he was making. He says, wow, that's a lot more than I'm okay. making. Right. So he starts practicing. He could juggle, he could juggle oranges because he was an orange picker. They could all juggle oranges. So they started learning things. Then he sees Bobby May on TV. That's his inspiration. He starts working really, really hard. So then I'm there with him, uh, with him at the circus in Akron, Ohio in 74. And he says, yeah, I saw this juggler on TV named Bobby May. I said, Bobby May lives right up the road here, <laughs> 20 minutes <laughs> right. away. He says, really? I said, yeah. I said, I'll take you there. So oh, we funny. jump in my car and yeah. we go up to Bobby May's house. I call Bobby and tell him we're coming up with El Gran Picasso. And so we get to Bobby May's house and the front door opens up and Emily is there and she's got uh, her castanets. Yeah. And they're playing the music on the thing and da 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 <laughs> Uh, and Emily's got her cast in this and she's she's dancing and Bobby has a cape and he's got the little Toreador hat on and he's speaking Spanish to Picasso and everything. So we all go in and Picasso just thrilled. Oh that's he's fun. just thrilled. Yeah. And Bobby May was thrilled. So after that I became really good friends with Picasso and he told me he says he says, When you want to get in show business, here's my phone number. I'm gonna be in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel and a brand new show out there. If you come out there, I'll, I'll help you however you, whatever you need. Uh, man, you have all these, all these names, Javi Burgess, Bobby May, Paul Bachman, El Gran Picasso. This is oh, all yeah. like, a, you know, oh, yeah. who's who of yeah. juggling. Yeah, all I did was practice. I ran into all of these great people that were so helpful. So so Picasso gave you the blessing to do the, the, the ping pong balls. He didn't like, like want to keep himself like ownership or. Oh yeah, he's, he came here. So let me show you this. He says you can make a lot of money with this. Right. And he showed me all the technique and everything, how to do it. And he didn't care. He was so he was such a secure guy. He yeah. was he was making money like he never made before in his life. And and he was a bit older too. He learned when he was older. Like he was like twenty seven or something when he. Yeah. yeah, he was he was quite quite old then. Yeah. But he can't. He became very wealthy. With he saved all of his money and he bought up the orange farms that he lived that he worked on. 
Mm. And he put them all together, and now he owns like the whole town there of the oranges oh, and the pomegranates right. and, and everything. He built built a beautiful home there, and he's the guy for. I, I went and I stayed with him. I worked on his farm in Spain. He's he's near Valencia in a little town called Quartel. Right, Quartel's where the farming community is there, and so I stayed with him and I I worked with him on his farm and lived his life with him in that town there. And he's extremely wealthy and extremely secure and extremely generous. And, you know, everybody will tell you. Anybody who knows Picasso's got stories and stories and stories about him. He's a guy that was in show business and told me that if you want to get into show business, you come see me and I'll help you. So right. the first thing I did, you know, when I had a chance, I went to Las Vegas or I, uh, yeah, I went to Las Vegas and I had my trailer there and I parked behind the Hacienda Hotel and I went to see Picasso. And I never saw anything like that before, you know, big show like that with yeah. the MGM, 120 dancers and Siegfried and Roy were in the show with him. And, <laughs> yeah, and, big um, review shows, right? Those were the days. Uh, this, was, this was a big deal, big yeah. deal. And he put me in the curtains. I'm on the stage in the curtains. You know? mm. The girls are all going by me. And, you know, I just got there from Ohio. I don't know anything about Las Vegas. Right, 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 right. And these were all like topless shows. They're all like hundreds of dancers. and Oh, you know, yeah. Hundreds. Hundreds. Big effects. There was 120 yeah. dancers in that show. Yeah. But I'm there, and then I went to see other shows. And, you know, he fixed me up so I could see other shows. And I was thinking like, man, I'm never going to be able to work in a place like this. It was so far. It was like becoming an astronaut now. I could never dream of being an astronaut from right. from where I'm sitting right now. But I never thought I could do that. And now here I am 40 years later. I work. 25 different hotels here in town and what's what's the first hotel you worked in vegas the very first place was the landmark it was it was a short gig and i don't even remember it but i was i was going through my contracts and i found a contract for the landmark hotel and um i had a job it must have been a fill-in spot or something like that but but it was enough to be contracted i had to have a contract so I, it was a landmark hotel and, and i think it was a magic show yeah and then from there i went i did a, a circus tour and then I went um, with the Globetrotters, and then the Globetrotters took me to Europe. And while I was in Europe, I was was hot in Europe. I was I'd done the championships, I'd done the, the circus festival in Monte Carlo, and I had a good name in Europe. I was really well established. And then I was in France, in the south of France, and a guy walks up to me and he says, "Hi, I'm Wayne Newton." <laughs> Right. He asked me if I speak English, and I said, "Yeah, I speak English. I'm from Ohio." <laughs> so he says, "Great." He says, well, I'm doing a new show in in Las Vegas. I'm, I'm going to buy the Aladdin Hotel, and I want you to be in my show there. And he hooked me up with the producer and the choreographer, George Reich. And he said, There's, these guys are going to do my my show for me, and I want you to be in my show. So he gave me the phone numbers. He says, contact these people. He says, as far as I'm concerned, it's a done deal. Right. And we did everything just on, a, just on a handshake. And so what they did is they brought me... When I finished in France, they brought me to Miami to a show that was at the Sheraton Hotel in Bell Harbor. That whole show, they were going to pick that up and put that in the Aladdin Hotel. Right. When the showroom was finished and all of the, you know, all of the business for the sale of the hotel. So then I opened it. My first real job was at the um, Aladdin Hotel with for Wayne Newton. Wayne Newton was the actual producer of the show. He wasn't in the show, but it was in his showroom. It was a big, big review show. There was me. There was a pickpocket, Bob Arno. Mm, Bob Arno, yeah. There was a, a, a low wire act, the Theranos. Well, let's backtrack a little bit to the Globetrotters because that was a, people don't realize now, but like back in my day, like when I was starting to see jugglers, that was a pretty big gig. Like the people who did the Globetrotter tour, that was a good position for a juggler because 
they had multiple uh, engagements. I think they had more than one troop, mm-hmm. and they had they had several acts that traveled with them. In addition to the basketball, they had right. bike acts and jugglers, and they were multi multi month tours. How long did you spend with the Globetrotters? Well, the, the Globetrotters was see, that was another lucky thing because I had in those days you couldn't have a videotape. You had to have a the, the way you did your auditions with the pictures. Right. And if you had a name, you could send a picture and people say they would book you from that. But if you didn't have a name, a picture didn't do you any good at all. Yeah. So the only thing you had was a three minute, eight millimeter film. And you take that with a a movie camera, you'd send the film out. A week later, it would come back, two weeks later. And then you have to have a projector to look at it. And there's no sound on it. It's just an image, (laughs) you know, for three minutes. And if you screwed up, then you have to do it over again. You can't erase it. Right, right. No editing. Yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't do anything with it. Right. Anyways, I I got an address from Albert Lucas's dad. Yeah. Uh, Albert and David Lucas, they worked for Icecapades. Icecapades was owned by Metro Media Company. Metro Media also owned the Harlem Globetrotters at that time. Mm. Right, right, right. So Albert Senior, he says this might be a good place for you. They've had a lot of acts on there, and he gave me the address for the Globetrotters, uh, which was on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Yeah, I did a film. I put it in an envelope and I sent it over there <laughs> to the office. And of course, nothing happened because I didn't yeah. have a cell phone or anything. They sure, sure, sure. They couldn't yeah. get a hold of me. And I was touring around with the TNT Circus. I managed to get a job with that circus where I saw Walter Hawk working. And I was in Peoria, Illinois, and I finished a show. And two ladies came over to me and said, can we talk to you? And they said, we'll be waiting for you over here in the food court. So I go and I get my towel. I'm all sweaty and I got my costume on and everything. And I had a pretty decent little act at that time. And I was working it. It was solid. Yeah. So I went over there and I sit down and the lady says, well, I'm Marie Linehan. I'm the entertainment booker for the Harlem Globetrotters. And she gives me her card. Oh, <laughs> right. And she says, how would you like to see the world? Yeah, right, right, right. And she says, and this is our booking agent, Simone Finner. Oh, okay. So Simone gives me her, her card as well. And I says, I'd love to see the world. And Simone whips out a contract just like in the movies and she slaps it down on the table (laughs) right and she said there's three years with the harlem globetrotters we have two different units you'll be able to be working the whole time and um that's our offer and i said i'll take it (laughs) no argument at all of course of course simone was one of our first managers so we we crossed paths there too right so we know simone of course yeah yeah of course everybody knows simone everybody (laughs) in those days she was powerful you know oh yeah that was i said that was a big tour I mean, we knew about yeah. that. I mean, uh, uh, what Barrett Felker did that tour. Michael Chirik did that tour. I mean, it was a it was a good gig to get. Yeah, Michael was already there. In the meantime, I got a little education on the Harlem Globetrotters, and I learned that Rudy Cardenas was there. Yeah. Uh, Lily O'Coy was there. In fact, I worked with Lily later on, and Barrett followed me. I kind of followed Michael because Michael was already there. Michael Sherrick. Yeah. And so Michael was kind of winding down because he had already been around the world. 20 times. <laughs> so I was the next guy to follow in right. uh, behind Michael. After I was there for a couple of years, I remember I met Barrett in Colorado and he was like, I was, he was like, Hey, how do you get into the Globetrotters? <laughs> I said, well, just be patient because I'm right, right. ready to go. You know, yeah. because when I got on the Globetrotters, the nice thing is you're making money. The, the money was fabulous. It was three yeah. times what I ever made anywhere. And you can't spend any of it because you can't, if you buy something, you can't carry it. Right. Because you're traveling by bus and by little planes, I guess, or yeah. Exactly. All expenses are covered. Yeah. Everything's paid. I travel all over the world. Everybody comes to see the Globetrotters because they know they got three acts there. 
So all the great venues all over the world. Mm. And they come after the show and they say, hey, when are you going to come work for us? Right, right, right. I did three years nonstop and I had a list as long as your arm of <laughs> the best venues in the world. Uh, and all of them are just waiting for me to give them the price and the opening date. This was really the heyday of my show business. And, and that was the base of it because I could turn down everybody and they knew I could do that. They knew I could stay with the Globetrotters forever. So it was a great place to negotiate from. You kind of glossed over it, but not only did you go to the Monte Carlo Circus Festival, you won a silver clown. So you won a, a top prize. Right. How did you get invited to that festival? What was that experience like? Well, I got that from the championships, the first championships. Okay. Let's go back to that then because... That was kind of weird. Like that was a promotional thing you did with Cremo and, and Rudy Schweitzer. How'd that come about? Well, that was seven, 79. And I, I was with the Globetrotters. I, I just finished a tour and I was in Spain. From Spain, I went to, um, we were just leaving to go to the airport. And a guy from the hotel came out to the bus and he gave me a telegram. And it was from an agent named Brian Roxbury in London. And he said, call me immediately. So I call him up and he says, I can put you in Blackpool, England for the whole summer. Hmm. I said, I'm in Spain now. I said, I don't know. <laughs> when do you want to open? He says, tomorrow. Right. And there was no way I could get there the next day. Yeah. And I said, well, I can't make it tomorrow or even the next day or even the next day after that. Do you have somebody that can cover for me? And he said, yeah, Nino Frediani is here. Okay. <laughs> he just finished. He just right. finished a gig for me. Right, and I right. said, well, ask Nino if he wants to do it. So anyway, Nino goes to Blackpool. He covers that week for me. I get there. I open in Blackpool. The big hit. Everything's going great. And from there, I get a call to go to the circus championships and i said well who is going to be in the circus champ who am i competing against right and the agent told me it was um it was a guy richard del oro they said a kid from scotland huh. and richard right. del oro is like a, a foot juggler yeah 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 and they said it's a kid from scotland and nobody ever heard of him yeah and so i was thinking well i don't want to go this is a big bbc tv show and I said, well, I don't want to go and maybe I lose. Sure. To some kid from Scotland. Yeah. So I turned it down. I said, that's okay. I'm, I'll pass because I'm doing okay right now and I don't want yeah, to go yeah. backwards. Then anyways, he goes, well, once he heard my reasoning, he says, well, I was lying to you. It's not those guys. Oh. <laughs> the other people is Chris. It's Chris Cramo and Rudy Schweitzer. So I'm like, holy cow. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I was thinking I'll never have a chance against these guys. Yeah. And if I lose, so what? Sure, sure. You lost to Chris Cremo and Rudy Schweitzer. Yeah. You're supposed to lose. Sure. I'd, I'd be in the same show. Yeah. Sure. I'd be in, I could mooch off of their success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, I'll take it. So anyway, I do the show and I win. Well, because they were kind of the same act. I mean, they were both cigar box guys and top hat guys. Right, and... right, right, right. And you, had, you were more dynamic. You had like the... I think you had bigger tricks, like you had uh, yeah. the ring juggling and the ping pong ball. So yeah, it was it was different. The way it yeah. worked out was good. You know, yeah. it was really good. But I was still surprised. And right, right. after I did that show, immediately I get a phone call from Monte Carlo from the, right. the circus festival, the attorney for the prince. Yeah, and he says he says we want you in a Monte Carlo festival. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what's that? And they said, oh, it's the biggest festival in the world. Right, biggest circus festival for sure. Yeah, yeah, and. They hooked me up with uh, Dr. Frere, Alain Frere, who's the coordinator for everything. And he told yeah. me, he says, yeah, we saw, we saw the show from London. And um, you know, we, we wanted to come to Monte Carlo. The Prince, he was, Prince Rainier was the final decision. But it was Cary Grant, Prince Rainier, right. uh, Grace Kelly, David yeah. Niven, and, and, and Dr. Frere. Bring me Dick Franco. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they booked me for that. So I did a... a a week and a half at the uh, Savoy Hotel in London. 
Yeah. When I finished that, then I went to Monte Carlo and I did the in the festival there. And of course, your wife is assisting you at this time, Carly. Right? This is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Globetrotters told me early on. He says, "If you put your wife in the act, we'll pay all our expenses." Right. <laughs> yeah. So I told her, I said, "Well, you got to be in the act." She says, "What do I need to do?" And I thought, "Or just stand there, do something." Right. She would just straighten everything up on the table. There's only I had this prop table, you know, and yeah. there's what there's four clubs, four <laughs> balls. A thing with some ping pong balls and some rings. Sure. I said, yeah, just stand there and just rearrange stuff. So she'd move the balls over here and move the clubs <laughs> over there. And, and she would wipe them off and everything. And then she would throw me a couple of rings. And She was good, though. She was like the stereotypical female assistant. But she did that role really good. I mean, she was really good at that role, I thought. She took over the act. Yeah. She took over the act. And I tell you, I had a hard time getting booked without her. What'd you call her? Rosie, the quicker picker-upper? What'd you call her? You had a nickname for her. <laughs> yeah, she became the comedian, the comedy focus of the whole act. You know, she was hilarious. Yeah, because you, you added more comedy as you went on, but... Oh, yeah. All right, so you're doing this... Uh, let's go back to the, the circus festival. I didn't <laughs> add the comedy. She did. <laughs> she did. Well, she had a real presence on stage. I mean, it really was... They loved her. I mean, you think of acts like, you know, like Charlie Fry and people who use uh -huh. the, that kind of duo act... Right. And the assistant becomes a big a big selling feature. Yeah. And I always thought Carlene was a big selling feature in your act. Yeah. After the show, everybody would go to her. They would walk <laughs> right past me. Right, right and, right. and they would go to her. And that's when I knew I said this is this is good. This is working. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. She she stole the show. And w which was great. Well, I mean, you need that in a juggling act. I mean, juggling act needs a little right. appeal, a little sex appeal, a little you know, feminine presence, yeah. and she was great right. at that. Yeah. So she's doing all these shows with you, and so you do the, the Monte Carlo Festival. Right. Well, Monte Carlo, was a, we did a straight act. There was no comedy there because they want, right, right, right. They want a flash act, and they want to see what you yeah. can do. And so I had all new props made. I had music done in London, just fabulous music. And I had a lot of help there, too. You know, uh, I had a lot of rehearsal that nobody else had because the stage manager, I knew him from Las Vegas. Right. And he told me, he says, park your trailer here by the tent because a lot of people are late for their rehearsal. Oh. And if you're here, we could we could yeah. rehearse your music until they get here. Yeah, yeah. So my music was clean. Yeah. My music was a couple, uh, there were two Buddy Rich arrangements that right, were right. really difficult to play. But everybody else's music was painful and slow. Yeah. And my music was sharp because the guys liked it and they had played it a million times. Smart. Yeah. In those days, the, the, the festival was 40 acts. Wow, okay. It was four days, 10 acts, 10 acts, 10 acts, 10 acts. And I was in the second day in the second half of the show. So they had already had a full day, a half a day, but with everybody's music is so painfully. <laughs> There's nothing worse than that a peppy piece of music that's played sure. really slow with no energy. Or sloppy, that's, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. So I was the first one to come out, and my music was sharp. In the newspapers, even that day, they said they explained this is Dick Franco came on, blew the crowd away. He mm -hmm. says, We could tell you right now, definite silver clown. That mm -hmm. was on the second day, right? And right so, right. I was the first one to win. You know, the the clowns are the major prize, yeah. In Monte Carlo, so I was the first first American to win anything, and then I was the uh, the first juggler to, to win anything there, a major prize. But then, after that, then Chris Crable came along and and Victor Key and yeah. Picasso Jr. And there were a lot of... And of course, uh, Anthony Gatto came along too, right? He, uh... Right. Well, Anthony came along and he took the gold, you know. He, he blew everybody away. But... but you were an important part of Gatto's career too because didn't you get him like one of his first casino gigs? You were, like when he was very starting out, you helped him, I think it was at the Hilton. 
Is that right? Yeah, well, you know, I was at the Hilton. I had gotten my feet in the door in Vegas, and, and I was working for Hilton Corporation and doing a lot of their shows. It was me right. and Nino Ferniani and Steve Bohr. Mm-hmm. We, we were like the regular acts, and we would switch hotels in the Hilton, in the Hilton chain. I opened a new show up in Reno called Razzle Dazzle. It was at the Reno Hilton up there. And while I was there, I had the offer to go to Australia to do a big, it's a big circus. They do it uh, every four years. And it, it pays really well, and it's a, you know, it's a, a very high-profile gig. And I would have had to leave the Hilton to go there to do that. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, I didn't want to erode my position with Hilton Hotels. And sure. so I, I told the people in Australia, I said, why don't you uh, – um, I, I saw this juggler who was on That's Incredible, Anthony Gatto. He's just a little kid. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it, it's phenomenal. It's if you book him for this year – You'll get this little kid. If you wait four years, he won't be a little kid anymore. Ah, okay. So you book Anthony now, and I'll come four years from now when I get done at the Hilton. Oh, okay. Smart. Okay, yeah. And so they said, well, that's a good idea. But the condition was that, that I get him ready. Oh. Because he, okay. didn't, he didn't have an act or anything. Oh, yeah, because he's pretty raw after all this. That's incredible. It's like eight or nine years old. Yeah. Yeah, he was just doing a demonstration. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I was in a position at the Hilton. I could rehearse with him. I could get his music done. I could get his costumes done for him and everything. And I could put him on stage with me, mm. like on a Sunday matinee or something like that, <laughs> sure. which yeah. is what we did. Yeah. And so gradually he developed a little bit of personality and I was on stage next to him so I could push him and, you know, make yeah. him smile and say things to him and everything. So give him a little bit of life. Right, right, right. So anyways, we we did that, and it was a big, huge success, and uh, he went to Australia, and that was a big success for him. I stayed at the Hilton Hotel, and and then later on, I was getting toward the end of my gig with the Hilton, because I'd already done a couple of their hotels, and the the publicity department says, he says, I just heard they're going to bring Anthony Gatto back, Hmm. and he's going to get the spot in the show. Right. So I was like the odd man at that. Ah. (laughs) I was was thinking, boy, I got to do something here if I want to stay with this company. Yeah. So um, I was getting my car worked on and across the street was a a secondhand shop. And in the window, they had there was a chainsaw sitting there. Right. And I saw the chainsaw and it was 10 bucks. So I bought it and I said, well, maybe I can do something with that. So I took it back to my house and I was trying to figure out how I could throw it, you know, and catch it or what I could do with it. And um, a friend of mine said, well, why don't you put a handle on it like your clubs? And that way it'll feel like a club. And he understood, you know, how it worked. I had a flywheel. And he says, when it's running, it'll be stable because the flywheel will be turning, the chain will be turning, and maybe I'll be able to do something with it. Right. And so I learned how to throw that one chainsaw around. And then um, it, it got easy enough that I was thinking like, well, maybe I could even do three of those. So I got two and then I got a third one and I built the third one. And then my last week at the Hilton, before I close, I put it in the show. <laughs> right. And, and right after the first show, I get up the stairs in my dressing room, phone is ringing already, and it's Dick Lane down in Las Vegas. He says, get those hacksaws. He called them hacksaws. Right. And he says, uh, and get down here to Vegas as quick as you can, because you're going to open up in City Lights at the Flamingo. I said, okay. <laughs> so then I'm off right away. I'm uh, First, I'm unemployed. And then Right. A phone call later, then I got the, the gig. Well, but people don't realize the chainsaws were a real novelty. I mean, it was the kind of thing where some people did them, but only a couple of people really did them well enough to be like like consistent, like you and you know, for like if you needed someone for a TV show or a big appearance or. Well, that was know. later on. See, yeah. Because the, the chainsaws 
Well, my chainsaws were 11 pounds empty. Wow, right. And that's 33 pounds. That's heavy. That's yeah. really heavy. And that was the lightest chainsaw I made. And so my saws, everybody was looking for something dangerous. You know, there were knives <laughs> and there were yeah. torches and I'm going to juggle fire and all this kind of stuff. So it, it was a natural progression to get into chainsaws. Mm -hmm. You know, the shape is kind of like a like a club. And when you put a handle on it, it's yeah, it, it's, a, it's a club is what it is. The weight, though, like 11 pounds, that's that's brutal. Yeah, right. That's the problem is the weight. So I had to do weight training and. And there's a lot of things I had to do to get ready for that. And then when you, the way I started, I put the first one, I balanced it on my chin. Right. So you got a chainsaw running above the head, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And two others in your hand. That was a little crazy, yeah. but, but I got used to it. And I, I, I only dropped them once. I only dropped them once in, hmm. in all those years. Right, right, right. But, That's good. Um, I could yeah. get it so I could control it. And I had that all to myself for, for years. I was doing... I did more than 50 television shows around the world with that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was available, but it was such a hard thing to do. Right. They were so heavy. And yeah. no, nobody, could, nobody could do it because they were so heavy. Because right. you, you can't throw from the wrist. You have to throw from the legs. The yeah. throw comes from your legs, not from your, you know, with a club, you throw with your wrist and your right. elbow. Like everything. a full body. With these things. Yeah. yeah, you have to lift it and, and <laughs> let it turn itself, you know, times three. Yeah. And if you throw short, then the blade is right in front of you. And I didn't do it. I didn't cheat on it because there's no reason to cheat. Yeah. Because the blade is way over there. The, the blade is actually more than a foot away from your hand. Right. So there was no reason to cheat on it. Meaning the blade was running, the blade was actually turning. and, and the... Yeah, yeah, everything right. was turning, yeah. Wow. I would start them, and I had a little screwdriver, and I would crank them up right there in front of the people. Right. Uh, it's more ballsy than I would ever do, Dick. Not, <laughs> not just the weight, but I, I wouldn't do that. I don't know. Right, it's right, too scary, right. yeah. But, but Echo Chainsaws, they came out with a little one that was half the weight. Then right. everybody was doing it. Yeah. No, but for a while, though, you were the go-to guy for the chainsaws, for sure. Well, yeah, I'd been around the world... 10 times I'd done all the big major TV shows, except for in America. I never did anything in America because they don't pay any money for television in America. Also, didn't you do a, a records breaking for the ping pong balls too? I remember. Uh, well, I did. That's incredible. I, yeah. I did the like five or something. Or, yeah. That was the premier show that they did and they paid. That was good money. Right, right, right. That was Turk Pipkin. You know, oh, Turk, Turk Pipkin. Yeah. Yeah. Did he, what he booked you on that or. Yeah. He called me and he said, cause I just opened at the Aladdin. And they, right. they brought me down. Uh, I did the show and then I came back and did. I was working for Wayne Newton at that time. So I did the That's Incredible with Komazuro. We were on the right. same, we were on the yeah, same the show. Spinner. Yeah. Right. And then I came back and I, I worked that night. Well, these things are very memorable because there weren't that many, you didn't see that many jugglers on TV. Right, right. So when you saw someone like, like on you on TV, it became it was a big deal, you know? Right, right. Well, well, there were still, there were some jugglers on like uh, Bobby Sandler was, he was yeah. all over television, you know, in, in those days. Yeah, another juggler taught by Javi Burgess. So there's another uh, uh -huh. crossover. Yep. Hey, you know, we're, we're brought yep. to you by the IJA. So we'd be remiss without mentioning that you you have a little uh, relationship with the IJA as well, because you were one time an IJA president. I was, yeah. I was convention chairman. And you also hosted a festival, right? And, and that was in 1975. Right. Joe Sullivan and I did the first, we would say, mega festival. Because it, prior to that, it was always in like a a holiday in convention room, a little room with, I don't know what, yeah. 30 or 40 people. But then we did a convention where we practiced that was a YMCA with, it was a YMCA complex in Youngstown, Ohio. You know, they loved us there. We had juggling classes, we had everything going on. So when I went to them and I said, Hey, we want to throw a, 
juggling convention here. (laughs) And they said, great. And we promoted it. And I don't remember how many people, but hundreds of people showed up. They said over 300 jugglers. It became the first of the largely attended festivals of the Mm -hmm. IHA. became, like you said, one of the first what they would call mega festivals. Because from that moment on, it kind of grew and grew. And then it hit its peak maybe in the late 80s. Right, right. But they said it attracted 300 jugglers. Yeah, that was a big deal. That that, that was a, yeah. a big mushroom. Youngstown, Ohio was good. There's nothing going on there. We had that great facility with the YMCA. They had uh, two major gymnasiums there. They had uh, accommodation there. The hotels were inexpensive. They had a cafeteria with food. All the elements were there that were missing with the other yeah. with the other shows uh, or with the other conventions. And so, I don't know, it clicked. Everybody showed up. Everybody <laughs> had a good time. We had a great dinner. Bobby May was the guest of honor. Oh, great. At, yeah. At the dinner. He showed up and we premiered the film. Oh, right, uh, right. The, the Juggling Fool and yeah. and that black and white video from the, uh, the oh, black classic. and white film from, yeah. from Germany, from the Scala in Berlin. That yeah, one. yeah, yeah. Classic. And Bobby right. hadn't seen those either because... Oh. We had gotten all of that film, and Paul Bachman had it all restored. Yeah. At the dinner, we showed the film, and nobody knew what was going on or who it was. And then when the lights came up, I introduced Bobby May. Ah. He walked up. <laughs> it was wonderful. Right, 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 right. It was fabulous. Oh, that is fabulous. And, and we had a bronze club. One of his clubs were bronzed with an inscription on it. Nice. And I, I presented that to him. And the first thing he did is he threw it down and did a kick-up with it. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, I got to meet him once right towards the end of his life. Now, another person that was, uh, I think, from Ohio, that's pretty important in the history of juggling, kind of an un- unheralded hero, uh, was Frank Radke. Tell us oh, who Frank yeah, Radke Frank. is and how you helped uh, develop the, the silicon ball. Yeah, well, Frank was, uh, he was in Toledo. He was a magician. He made ma- magic props, as it was called, Fakini, Fakini props. Yeah, House of Fakini. Yeah, House of Fakini. And one of the props that he made that everybody used were these multiplying billiard balls, but they were actually silicone, made of silicone. They were miniature silicone balls, what they were. Yeah, but the size of billiard balls, yeah. Right, right. A tiny. Dutch juggler, Eddie Rostow. He ran into uh, a magician who showed him those, those multiplying billiard balls, and he said, boy, that'd make a great juggling ball. So he contacted Frank Radke, and Frank made his first set of, of white like lacrosse ball size juggling balls. Yeah. And then, and this was for Eddie Rosto. Eddie Rosto showed those to Gildova. Right. Gildova contacted Frank Radke. <laughs> he made a set of balls for Gildova. And then 1978, I opened in England. This was the show where Nino Frediani was filling in for me. I get to England after I get started there. Gildova comes across. He was working across the street at the opera house. He comes across to my theater, introduces himself, and I show him the, the props that I have, which were dog balls. <laughs> right. I got from Picasso. Right. Picasso got me those balls here in Las Vegas. And I was using those. They're hard as, they're hard as a rock. They're really heavy. And Gil shows me these other balls. And he says, maybe he can make you this size in the size that you like. Right. So I sent one of those dog balls to Frank Radke and asked him if he could make one. He goes, sure, I could do that. And he went and he found a ball bearing that was approximately that size. It was three and a 16th inches in diameter. And that was close enough. And he said, I'm going to make a mold with this ball bearing. And that ball bearing is sitting somewhere, hmm. somewhere around. <laughs> and, and he made the three and 16th inch 
set of silicone balls, sent them to me in England. I put them in the show on the stage, and suddenly I'm doing the, I'm doing all these English moves where I'm throwing a ball out and coming back. I mean, I'm throwing it 20 feet away and it's coming back from those balls. And so that was fabulous. So I order more and more and more. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, Paul Bachman, who was my friend, he says, "Oh, I want those too." So he ordered some, and then pretty soon now, now everybody's using these Frank Radke balls. And later yeah. on, the other the other prop makers. They started right. making them too, but they never gave credit to Frank. So every time I would see, you know, anytime I had an opportunity, I was always say, these were, these weren't invented by these people. This was invented by Frank Radke, who lived in Toledo, Ohio. This little guy who does that out in his garage. Yeah, I do the same because you introduced me to him and he made me uh, some yeah. silicon golf balls and uh-huh. also some golf right. props when I was doing my golf act. And uh-huh. so he was an amazing resource, this guy. Frank Radke. It was kind of like this, this secret. And when people would say, oh, yeah, Dubay or whoever made the silicon balls, I'd be like, oh, no. Give no, credit no, to no. Frank Radke. Yeah. Yeah. Just give credit where it's due. But Frank was the guy. I mean, he's the guy that thought about that stuff and how to do it and <laughs> how to make them last. And, and he refined everything. He worked the bubbles out of them and so that yeah. they didn't crack or they didn't, they didn't change shape or anything like that. He's, he's the guy. Well, I still use that golf setup he made for me. And that was, you know, over... 30 some odd years ago so yeah i I still have a a quality craftsman that man quality i have a whole drawer full of silicone balls and i go out i have to turn them every once in a while i keep them on Ah, fall forever and turn them so they don't get a flat spot on them i had some in the garage once they were eaten by rats silicone balls really yeah like down to the core it was really strange (laughs) so i don't know what they got out of it but uh david kane has some of the originals, the very first set. Oh, of Frank Radke's of of silicone balls that 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 I had from from right. Frank Radke. Yeah, David Kane has some of those, and I think I have one or two of the original ones left. But I have a bunch that are good. I, I could work with them if I was working, but but uh, but I'm I'm not. But you 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 retired. But let's be fair. But you've also produced some books. If people want to get a book by uh, Dick Franco, what books are available, and how tell us about those and where they're where we can get them. The Dick Franco. None of them. <laughs> None of them. Oh, I thought there was uh, the club. The club one's on Amazon, I think. Mm, I don't know. Maybe they are on Amazon. I haven't looked. But you wrote what? Three books? Uh, three clubs? Three I had uh, three three club juggling and uh, what was it? Uh, three ball digest. Mm, yeah, three those, ball those digest. are the two. Those yeah. are the two. I have a couple other books, but I never published them. Now you told me very sadly that you have retired from juggling and that you don't even really touch the props anymore. But you've. Uh, Sounds like you're doing good. What do you think about this modern juggling? <laughs> What's sad about that? I'm, I'm not sad. <laughs> oh, no, no. You had such a long, long, long great career. It's just yeah, sad no. that the industry hasn't uh, really supported us old jugglers and given us more to do. I did 40. I did 40 years. Enough. Yeah. Here, I'm, here, I have my props. The props are right here. I touched one. Okay. I touched <laughs> one. And here. Hear that? Right. Okay. That's it. My practice is finished now. <laughs> so, but are you? In, do you stay involved with juggling? Do you watch? I, I know I sent you uh, a couple of videos recently. That's probably the first time you you watched juggling in a while, or uh, I don't know if I'm forced to. I guess. I'm... <laughs> but you, but you stay in touch with your friends. Like I, we talked at Tony Furco. Oh a yeah, I keep. A, yeah, but we never talk about juggling. Tony lives no. close to me, and his brother Ferdinand. Yeah, they live close by, and. And Wally Eastwood's here. I, I go see Wally, but I'm, I don't go see him juggle. I just go see him because he's a friend of mine. But Well, sure, sure. But Wally's here, and then Neil Stunker is in and out of town. And 
yeah. David Lucas. I talk to David Lucas all the time and Albert. Of course. And, and Michael Cherick is still working, but he's uh, oh, yeah. out in Branson or wherever he's at. Yeah. But we don't we don't talk about we we don't talk about juggling. We talk about other stuff. Every time I call Michael, he's feeding the ducks because he has right, ducks. Right. That come, they come to his back door, and he's got to take care of the ducks. So that's the topic, you know. And of course, there's some great acts that uh, we both know that aren't with us anymore, like Vince Bruce. Ah, uh, yeah, Vince, and... a lot of wonderful guys. Vince was one of my best friends ever. You know, wonderful guy. Yeah, the greatest uh, Wild West act. Uh, you know, the, what a great act, great a great guy. person. So great guy. Wonderful. Well, Dick, guy. you've not only had a wonderful forty year career, you've shared it with us here. We very we basically brushed the surface of where you worked and who you knew and the the awards and the T V yeah. shows, but you know, we only have a certain amount of time, so we'll have to revisit this down the road, Dick. And Yeah, well well I I know the Raspini brothers too, you know, so Well, our our cross passed very early because you were at our very first review show gig. That's right. That's right. Which was scandals at Harvey's Hotel in Lake Tahoe. Right. The open lounge. It was an open lounge where people could write from the, the you know, playing blackjack, could look up and watch us doing our juggling act. That's right. And I said, we had watched all these videos of you and these movies, and you showed up <laughs> a real person. We're like, that's Dick Franco. Yeah, right, right. And of course, we became very friendly over the years and spent some wonderful time with you and Carlene and Paul Bachman. And, oh, yeah, great time. And especially Atlantic yeah. City and all those great times. So That's right. The, the Chicken Bone Express. Chicken, yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, we won't explain that, but yes, we did. We did work the Chicken Run Express, and uh, yeah, there's some pretty good times there. I, I want to thank you for all the great influence and great inspiration you were on me. Sure, Danny and Barry, and all the friendship, and um, yeah, I thank you guys too. Just so wonderful. It was just so great to share this journey, this juggling thing, and especially those yeah, years. Sure. You know, the in Vegas and the review shows, and it was a time, my friend. It was a time for sure, and I appreciate so much your part in my in my juggling journey. I saw you guys in so many great places with so many great people. So it's a great, great life, you know, great yeah, life. Right. Hey, thank you. So, thank you so much for my very special guest and good friend, Mr. Dick Franco. Thanks, Dick. Hey, you're welcome, Dan. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast number 103 with my special guest, Dick Franco. Hey, check out juggle.org to find out all about the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. Learn about this year's festival in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, taking place this summer. See you there. All right. One last time, go out and drop everything, except when you're juggling.